The term passionate is a word thrown around and overused. Mountain life has become a hashtag for wannabe influencers. These words can overshadow and diminish the incredible people who actually live, work and play in the mountains. They have remarkable stories to tell and I'm on a mission to find them. I'm Ashley Pettit and this is the Beyond the Mountains podcast. My guest today is Antoine Pun, and he is the director of Protect Our Winters France, a global non-profit network of climate change advocates, whose mission is to turn passionate outdoor sports people into passionate advocates and voices for the environment and climate. Founded in 2007 by Jeremy Jones, a world-famous snowboarding athlete who was witnessing firsthand the mountains and glaciers he was surfing on changing for the worst. The non-profit organization has now expanded around the world with offices throughout the USA, Asia and Europe. I sat down with the director of its French operations, Antoine, and we talk about the effects of global warming on the French Alps and the Pyrenees. We talk about how his love of nature and the outdoors led him to study this field at university and how he is now leading the change for the future of the planet for everyone. Before we start the interview, I know all of you listening love your mountain sports, so please go and check out the Protect Our Winters website and social media pages and get involved. Let's try to make a difference to protect the places we love to live, work and play in. Let's protect our winters for years to come. Okay, let's start the intro music. Get on with the show, Alonzi. Hello, my name is Antoine Pain and I'm a human who likes to spend time in the mountains. Um, I try to be a climate advocate. I'm way full of contradiction. I'm a skier, a paraglider, a wannabe climber too, and I have the honor of being the director for Protector Winters Friends. All right, let's go. Let's get into this jumping, all right? All right. All right, Antoine Pun, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh, This is my first uh, podcast in a while, so I'm looking forward to this one just before the winter arrives, so it's perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, we are just like really looking forward to the winter coming. Well, I've had the first snowfall up in the Moraine Valley, but uh, you told me you've had some early snow here. Yeah, but yeah. You're an auntie and it's, uh, it's beautiful and nice and warm here. Yeah, um, I actually live up in the mountains close to Annecy and like a week ago we had the pleasure to open the the windows in the morning and see a white blanket up top so it's coming yeah it's coming <laughs> it's coming uh speaking of winter what are you looking forward to the most this winter because it's going to be a different kind of winter this year we hope yeah um I don't know uh, I just want to be out there as much as I can with my work my professional and personal life um I think I want to be a bit more ambitious with the projects I have uh, around my house and um, usually uh, I do half of my outings uh, right around the the house and somewhere around and then I drive off for the 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 other half and I'd like for it to be close to 100% local skiing this winter. Um, What's your local resort? uh, It's called Ayon Margeria. 
So it's a really, really tiny, uh, tiny uh, resort uh, where most people know know it because they, that's where they came to learn skiing, yeah. uh, especially coming from Chambéry and, uh, and places like that. Um, but I moved like a few kilometers away from there and we do have beautiful mountains, but no resorts. So it's going to be mostly touring yeah, and off-piste touring and a bit of free ride too. So okay. it's going to be great. And uh, what are you going to miss most about the summer? What am I going to miss most about the summer? Uh, barbecues, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, uh, paragliding too, because uh, that's something I started a few years ago and I'm not too confident about the winter part of it yet. Um, the weather is different. You have to start on skis sometime yeah. and it might be a bit tricky with like all the lines and the and the skis and stuff like that. Um I think just going swimming in the lakes that's that's the one thing that really I enjoy in the in the in the summer um this summer was a bit different because I moved the house and I had a lot of uh uh work and construction work to do yeah so most of my holidays were spent doing the construction oh, okay, work nice. which is nice still I'm lucky enough to be able to do that so yeah what I'm going to miss is the sunshine and and the lakes, and uh, but we're gonna have sunshine yeah, <laughs> with yeah. the winter too. So, but you, you sound like a typical mountain person because every all my friends live in the in the Ortmorian. They're all building their houses. They're yeah. all tradesmen. They know how to do everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't know everything. <laughs> Pretty much, I I, uh, I like the skills with that, but I'm really interested to learn. And um, yeah, that was that was a really fun project. It's still not over yet, and we don't have the new heating system <laughs> coming from the winter, so that's a bit of a of a worry. But uh, yeah, I think that it comes down to the fact that whenever you need something to be done in the mountains, either you do it or you need to pay someone coming from afar to do it. And even though it might not be the best quality when I do it, it's going to be cheaper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, might as well try. And so you're, you're living here on the outskirts of, of Annecy, which is like in the foothills and the, the start of the, the French Alps. Are you born and bred here in, the, in this region or where are you from? Um, I was born and bred in the uh, Rhône-Alpes region, yeah. but way closer to Lyon. So I'm actually not a city boy, but I could see, and I was really funny, like in the, the first house I used to live in, on one side, you could see the city center from Lyon. On the other side, you could see the Mont Blanc. And, um, but like, as my parents told me that the first year I could walk, they put me on skis. Um, so my gaze turned towards Mont Blanc more than the city. Yeah, okay. And uh, yeah, I've been living here. Apart from the ten years I spent uh, overseas, I've been yeah, living we'll in the same region. Soon, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so you've always been an outdoor person, a mountain person. And it's always been in your your blood and your passion. Yeah, uh, I mean, like comes from a different time, you know, <laughs> where I'm not that old, but I mean, like we used to spend so much time outside um, and I was fascinated by um, by just nature and animals pretty much. That's that's my, uh, my uh, academic background too. It's just like um, insects, like that, that might yeah. be weird, but that insects were the stuff that uh, amazed me most. And most of the insects you find outside in the forest or in the mud or in the puddles. So you have to spend time outside. And I was lucky enough to grow up in uh, what you call the lotissement, you know, like a few houses built around like one like car park pretty much. Yeah. And there were a lot of kids my age. So we were like doing our own version of the Tour de France yeah. on the car park, our own version of the um, Roland Garros and come different seasons, different games and always spending time outside. Also finding time to play video games <laughs> inside too. <laughs> you have to be honest with that. But yeah, I don't know, like if 
it felt like uh, my, my parents shared some photos with me uh, a few months ago where I could see like every year from like maybe two to 15, they had a picture of us in the mountains, in the forest. And the first time we went to the ocean uh, for holidays, I think I was 14. Yeah. And before that, it was always in the mountains. Wow. Yeah. And so can you, because you, when you went to Australia, we talked, we'll, go, we'll get to Australia soon, but you obviously had to learn to surf, you would have been a I surfer. Tried. <laughs> I tried, I don't know if I did, but I tried, I'm a really poor swimmer. Uh, I like to spend time in the water, but I like to jump in the water. That's <laughs> that's my thing. Because um, the beaches are different in Australia, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, the beaches are different in Australia. The waves are massive. Um, you need to, it comes, I think to me first, like you need to be a strong swimmer to be a, a, a good surfer. And it's just like, you've got scary places over there. <laughs> I mean, like, you just look at the, the beach and you've got flags saying, okay, on this side, there's sharks. On this side, there's like crocodiles. Yeah, there's groups and yeah, <laughs> all groups. Then you've got the, um, how do you call them? Like the, the jellyfish. Yeah, the jellyfish, the blue ones. The, yeah, um, blue the, bottles. Yeah, the blue bottles that, you know, almost can kill you and stuff like that. So it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I might stay on the beach for a while <laughs> and go walk in the bush instead, yeah. But obviously, you um, yeah, you told me that you're passionate about uh, the being outside and insects. Is is that what led you to pursue uh, your studies in this sort of field? Is that yeah? Um, really, at first, I, I was quite lost as to what to do after high school, pretty much, and I went into an agricultural diploma, um, mostly because two of my friends were there, and it led me to understand that. Um, Agriculture is quite messed up <laughs> these days that people working in this field do have maybe some of the stronger, uh, like the hardest life uh, we can find in France, at least yeah. with people like doing other jobs like that. But it's really hard. And uh, my, my studies were to calculate how much like uh, fertilizer you need to put and stuff like that. And I remember like not taking it too seriously and making mistakes in my uh, in my calculus. And one teacher told us, like, okay, you find that funny, but with your mistake now, you've killed an entire river. It's like, okay, <laughs> you yeah. know, like maybe a bit too much pressure. And um, and from that point on, I was like, okay, it's like, I think, I think I want to spend some time outside, but I think I want, I want to understand what's going on too. I'm just curious, you know, it's just being curious. Um, I was blessed to have parents who offered me like I don't know if you know this magazine Geo yeah yeah, yeah, okay. Geo, Geo, yeah, yeah. Geo yeah and I've been reading that since I'm, I'm lead, since I, I didn't know how to read actually just looking at the pictures and yeah my parents were really really adamant about me spending spending time outside and getting interested in stuff and um, yeah it came to that and at the end of my diploma I was like, what am I gonna do? You know, yeah. like, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. And one of my friends wanted to go and uh, spend a year in Australia doing a work holiday visa, okay. uh, working in farms, like yeah. huge farms you've got uh, <laughs> yeah. back there. And I was like, yeah, I want to go with you, but I don't want to go work. I want to go study more. And my parents were like, cool enough to say, okay, um, we can support you with that, but just don't mess up. And I was like, okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And how did you find Australia? Awesome. Yeah? It was awesome. Uh, a bit lacking in Winterside, <laughs> let's say, especially where I was in Brisbane. Yeah, the up north, is, yeah. uh, it's more of a surfing and football, yeah. rugby culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually learned after leaving Australia that if you go down south, you can actually you can take your skis with you yeah. and, and you've got them like 
incredible skiers actually over there and the snowboarders too. And yeah, that was awesome. I learned so much because I went there and when I was 20 years old, so that's when you develop as a young adult. Um, I did a lot of couch surfing. Yeah. I did a lot of back backpacking. I live with in a house with like 15 people at some point, <laughs> uh, with like 10 different nationalities too. Uh, so you live, you cry, you laugh, yeah. and you learn that uh, yeah, the world is way bigger than than the the the, the one you've seen uh, up to that point. And yeah, that was some really some some hard times too, because you're far, and I was somehow poor student, like not too poor, because I'm a French guy in Australia. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but I, I didn't want to take too much money from that. I tried to work there, and so yeah, no, that was great experience, but. Um, Lacking in mountains, pretty oh, yeah. much. Yeah, in a, up north, it's not a, not so many mountains, but down south yeah. and towards Victoria and Melbourne, you yeah. have the the high range and the, the Victorian Alps. Yeah, and I think I was when I was researching one of the resorts, the uh, Threadbow Resort is part of the Protect Our Winters yeah. network now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's even a Protect Our Winters Australia, yeah. so that, that's awesome. But uh, yeah, I think I wasn't educated enough. I mean. You guys have one country the size of the entire yeah, continent. Europe, yeah. yeah, it's like crazy. So you look at the at the road sign. It says, "Okay, uh, Sydney, thousand kilometers." Whoa. <laughs> okay, you cool. Can cross three countries. Yeah, you can yeah. cross, cross three countries and stuff like that. So, again, I, I was at university too, so not too much time to travel. Uh, but I was awesome. Like university was awesome there. I mean, we could do magical stuff pretty yeah. much yeah. so what did you study in australia uh i started with uh environmental sciences and diverted to um biodiversity yeah uh just biodiversity conservation and i stopped before uh finishing the diploma because i moved to quebec after okay. that oh yes I've, I've, I've did some research yeah. i saw you were in canada in canada but uh did you uh, get to try some Vegemite in Australia? Yeah. Uh, okay, so one story about that is we went with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, obviously, that's a kind of a cliche outing to the Whitsunday's Islands. Yeah. Do some diving and just go to up the, in the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, up yeah. in the Great Barrier Reef, which was like crazy magnificent. And even like, we, we'll get to this, but that the environment is, the Great Barrier Reef is dying. It's, it's yeah. global warming. Is all affecting um, yeah, yeah, not the just bleaching. winking and the bleaching. Yeah, it's yeah the bleaching of the coral. And I, I, I have actually have seen pictures of the places they used to take people that go to the Whitsundays. Now they have to change the the routes because it's just all white yeah. dead coral, so it doesn't look good for tourists, uh, obviously. And yeah, coming back to the Vegemites, so uh, the deal we had was when you do go diving, something I'm sure you know, you need to log off and log in yeah. of the boat. And if you forget to log back in, when you come back from your dive, um, the punishment was a full spoon of Vegemite. <laughs> I had it once and yeah. I was over, never again. So now any place I go to and they say, oh, you need to log in. It's like, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> the Vegemite nightmare is going to come back. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean... We do have the stinky cheese, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, so oh, how can I complain, you know? <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that was a strange stuff. And funny enough, my Quebec friends really loved Vegemite. So, you know, like there's a thread going on yeah. there so, of me going there after that. I'm lucky my, my parents send me some Australian um, gift bags yeah. every now and again just to remind me of home. And I always say, make sure you send me some Vegemite. And yeah. when they do, I... I try to uh, introduce my friends in the mountains to Vegemite, but I, I, I do it gently so 
lots of butter yeah. and then a thin slice of it, a thin bit of Vegemite on top with fresh bread. Like a, that's not too bad. That's not too it, bad. It grows yeah. on you. And then you show them how you're supposed to eat it, like a <laughs> funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, ah. But Vegemite with uh, avocado and tomato is really yeah. good. Yeah, avocado toast, man. That was my my uh, food like diet for like almost two years. Yeah. Like, pretty much. I mean, it's cheap. I, I, I can recall uh, noting with my, one of my friends, we went and picked up avocado on a massive avocado tree. I didn't even know where they came from. And we had like two grocery bags, <laughs> like full of them. And it's like, man, that's out of this world. And like right after climbing into a fig tree, yeah. like stuff of, you know, like of legends when you hear about uh, Australia. And yeah, avocado, avocado toast. That's the way to go when you don't have any, too much breakfast. money there. Yeah. yeah. And so after Australia, then uh, how did you get to Quebec? <laughs> what's the story with pain there? <laughs> um, what's the story there is um, I didn't really want to finish my uh, diploma the way uh, Griffith University offered it um, back then Griffith University yeah, cool. too right yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, it, it didn't interest me the third year and the, the specialization didn't work for me and I live like I said with many people from many countries but um, you you guys do have a, a Quebec immigration, uh, I think. Uh, yeah. Maybe not uh, not problem because I don't want to use that word, but like uh, habits, like and the the fruit pickers, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, we have a lot of fruit pickers yeah. come over seasonal work. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 the. The, the way this goes is uh, people leave Quebec and go to um, West Canada, like Vancouver. They pick cherries there. Yeah. When the season is over, they fly down to Australia. They okay. do the fruit picking season over there. Yeah. They spend some time, spend their money, go back to Quebec, and then do it all over again. So I met a lot of people from Quebec. And what I used to say is like it was really interesting for me to... Um, hear people talking French and not complaining about everything. <laughs> it's like, okay, I want to go there. You know, it's like, I might as well try and go. And um, so I enrolled to a university called uh, McGill University, not hearing anything for like two months. And someday out of the blue, I get a, I get the, a mail saying like, okay, uh, your classes starts in three weeks. So you need a visa, you need everything. So I packed my two years life in like a week, yeah. lost my passport, <laughs> I flew to France on the 20, on the night from the 25th to the 26th of December in an empty plane. Yeah. Um, went in France, stayed in France for like four days, took the other plane on the 1st of January after spending uh, New Year's Eve with my friend, like at six in the morning, yeah. arrived in, uh, in Montreal. It was minus 35 when I left Brisbane. It was plus 35. Yeah, so that was a 70, 70 degree difference uh, between the two days. And for the first six months, um, I didn't know if I could stay in the, at university because my visa didn't check in. So the first few months, they seized my passport. Uh, well, pretty story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, long story short, yeah, I ended up living there for seven years. So you organized everything in three weeks and, and with a bit of uncertainty, you finally got to uh, go to university and spend seven years there. Yeah, 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 pretty much. And living with people that I met in Australia too, um, meeting back some people that I met in Australia back in uh, in Montreal too. So yeah, that was a bit of a rush, but um, at the time it felt like it was the way to go. Yeah. You know? What's so. the What are the differences and similarities between Canadians and Australians? Um, can I be a bit cliche here? Yeah. yeah okay. Cool. Um, my 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 first and foremost interest was to see how the weather 
could change people that seem really similar to me. Um, if you look at um, Canada's and Australia's stories, quite parallel. You got like the crown, like the English crown yeah. coming and settling and doing a, a new colony. You've got a really, really deep, sad and sickening um, history with Aboriginal people yeah, we do. and First Nation yeah. back there. Mainly the difference in somewhere it's really cold and on the other side it's really hot. Like that from the outside, that's what it is. And actually, I think that's two really close country, that's two really close people living afar. Um, people are really welcoming the same way. Um, you've got a huge country with incredible resources that are being exploited kind of behind your back. When If you look at Tarsens in Canada... Or uh, if you look at like the uranium uh, yeah. mining industry in uh, in Australia, like the Murray Basin rivers and stuff like that, it's really crazy. And I think you got two young countries that want to be good. If you look at the Australia and Canada on the international, um, yeah, international stage, yeah. you want to be perceived that way. Yeah, and if you look a bit closely, then you realize that ah, it might not be that much the case. And yeah, so not to say that that's the the two different countries. I think. Uh, the, the more difference you see come from adapting to the environment, one that is quite cold and damp would be Canada, yeah. <laughs> and the other one that would be uh, quite hot and humid, that would be uh, Australia. And But you can find the same, like the same warmth when you come in, you can find the same openness, I think, to new people coming in. And then some troubles with like few communities too. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed both time. I think I enjoy. I stayed longer in Canada because of life. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the big difference is not everything can kill you in Canada. <laughs> well, yeah, they've got brown bears. Yeah, but they're, they're a bit. They're a bit bigger. You know, like. Uh, 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 I remember one time, like on the terrace, like in the house we, we lived in, we had like this car seat outside that was like a couch and you just like lift it up and you see black widows there. And it's like, okay. And then Australians are fine. It's like, yeah, as long as, as, long as it doesn't bite you, you're fine. It's like, yeah, but I think that's the problem, you know. It should be right, mate. You yeah, know, yeah, no worries, be right, mate. No worries, mate. So, yeah, and the snakes and stuff like that, which made it really interesting for me as an as a aspiring scientist. Um, but then again, yeah, you got like obviously huge differences too in the day-to-day -day life and uh, and yeah but two two really welcoming countries uh, and i think countries that are still looking the for the way to go uh, and that that's my take as a, like my humble take yeah. really uh, as the way to go um as to the troubled pasts uh, we do in france have a really 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 troubled past but it's kind of remote and it goes like for a few centuries yeah I think for you guys, it's right in your face. You yeah, know? we're at the crossroads where we really need to uh, take some action yeah. and identify our past and then, you know, try to move forward with it. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's quite tricky. It's yeah. quite tricky because, like, I think at least half of the population in Australia has Aborigines blood nowadays. Yeah. Um, might be the same in Canada. Um, until a few years ago... Yeah, it was really, really hard. Like, if you look at the situation in Northern Territories and stuff like that, I, I've seen, like, some some really troubling scenes with, like, Aborigines people in the city and, like, they're completely lost and, like, yeah, the, the ravages of alcohol pretty much on their bodies and on their mind and on their culture. I met people from the stolen uh, generation, too, um, 
which was crazy. You know, it's like uh, like you really you don't even know that when you you're born and raised in France, you don't know that people were taken from there and sent to take the aborigines out and. And it was really interesting to see actually your first, uh, your prime minister apologizing at some point too. I think that was a massive yeah. first step. Um, the change in the national anthem too, yeah. like a few weeks ago, I think, a few months ago. I haven't been across it, but we're certainly acknowledging the Aboriginal past. And with all major ceremonies now, we, we acknowledge the first generations and the Aboriginal yeah. people when we do major sporting events and, yeah. and thank them for our... But the, the, talking about Aboriginals, they were great caretakers of the environment in Australia and also the Aboriginal people in Canada. Yeah. They were real protectors of the environment and the and Mother uh, Mother Earth and nature. So, you know, that kind of links us back to talking about the environment and protect yeah. our winters. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I actually did in the university was called traditional ecological knowledge and trying to how can you interpret interpret the, the knowledge coming from those First Nations into um, modern science. And you look that it's messed up because we are so specialized. You know, you got the mammal specialized, you got the, the snake specialist, you got the, like the tree specialist and you go to those elders and they say, no, no, it's like nature is one. I mean, nature doesn't even exist as a word sometimes in those languages. Um, not to say that those people didn't live in conflict. If you look at the uh, what they call the Indian Wars, uh, in in Canada, that may or may not have been fueled by the French and uh, English government. Um, those were no no child play, yeah. <laughs> I would say. But I think um, in the environmental perspective, they were more aware of the fact that uh, they are dependent of the of the environment around them, and not uh, shepherds. Let's say, you know, like yeah. they're part of it. They don't have to direct it and manage it. Still, after that, you've got some examples of like forest burnings and stuff like that. But um, yeah, no, it's really interesting to see how we can try and implement it. Um, not too much of our job <laughs> with the Protect Like Winter, but the link is there. Yeah. And uh, and I think um, one of the way as um, Westerners, we can get closer to those people or at least to the way they feel about their environments is actually the action spots that we do because um, you need to be connected to the slope that you're on. You need to be connected to the wind that you fly into. Yeah. You need to be connected to the rock that you're climbing on. And if you're just there to impose your body to the environment, things might go sideways for you. Yeah. Let's let's jump into into your role now as protective yeah. because obviously you from Canada, you've come back to France yeah. and Let's jump right back into protect our winters and the environment and climate change. So tell me, tell me about protect our winters and how did it all start? Uh, yeah, so protect our winters uh, kicked off in 2007 uh, thanks to the initiative of a snowboarder you may know called Jeremy Jones. Um, big name, yeah, big big name, uh, really nice guy. Um, like go check out the way he snowboards. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like if you if you're into snowboarding and you don't know him, um, yeah, you might get inspired. And it came from the fact that he could hear people around him, like athletes, maybe brand managers, and people that do spend a, a lot of time in the mountain, actually talk about uh, the changes they were seeing in the mountains. And most of those changes, from what he knew, could be linked to uh, this topic. He 
kept hearing about called climate change. Back in 2007, there wasn't such a hot topic as it is now. Um, and his thought was like, okay, um, what can what can we do first? Maybe we should testimony. We should testify on what do we see changing in the mountains because we're the people spending most time in the mountains. Yeah. And apparently, according to science, that's where climate change is going the fastest with the literals too. So that's that's how it started, just a, a group, almost a support group for people who do see change, who want to know why it's changing and who want to share what they, what they see. Now we're in 2021, a um, few years later, Protector Winters uh, is present in 14 or 15 countries, from the US to Canada to Japan, coming through Europe. Um, and the idea is for us to be the doorway to the environmental question for people who like to spend time outside in the mountains, especially, but just outside and uh, to tell them like, okay, look at your sports, look how much passion it gives you. Try and picture what would happen if this were to just be gone pretty much. So it's not just winter, is it? No. It's no, no, bigger no. than winter. Yeah. Uh, it's called Protector Winters because uh, that's the best season ever. Yeah. <laughs> and it, the Protector Winters is short for power. We all power, love power. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, Americans, they're really good yeah. for acronyms <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, we're looking for the papa and stuff like that. But um, it always comes back to, to the fact that um, one of the main um, signs of a stable climate, you can see... Uh, in our era, let's say, are snowy winters, pretty much, and glaciers on mountains. Yeah. So if you do protect the winters, you might also be protecting the rest of the year, pretty much. And um, yeah, that's how it came to be. And so what, how does protect the winters? How do, you, how do you use your influence? Because you're using, um, Jeremy Jones was an athlete, and you're using athletes and ambassadors to communicate and talk about our passions and our sports. So... Tell me, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, so the idea is for, for us is to put our own spin on uh, subjects that are uh, coming across the, um, the news, pretty much. Uh, the idea is for us to pick the interests of people that do like action sports and mountain sports and drive the, their attention to uh, climate matter. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, the way we do that is by using uh, the awesome imagery we produce in the mountain sport and activity. I mean, like, look at someone doing a backflip over <laughs> a cliff. You got people's interest with that. And from that interest, coming from just pictures and visuals and stuff like that, we try to direct them to the actions they can take, pretty much. So um, I'm going to talk about friends here. Um, the biggest problem we've got... Uh, when it comes to carbon emissions uh, in the mountains in France, is the way we go to the mountains. Yeah. At least 50 to 60, maybe to 70%, according to the last, uh, latest numbers, 70% uh, of the carbon emissions from the mountains or um, from mountain destination come from the transport sector. Meaning that um, for us, it's a, uh, it's a really hot topic. And the, the way we try and present it is to... Well, we've got three sides of it. First, it's to try and produce content that showcases the mountain without any cars in it. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we can leverage the uh, reach of our ambassadors. Uh, we call them uh, Aventures Sans Voiture, so car-free adventures. And we try to create mov movies. We quite tr try to write blog posts, um, news articles and stuff like that, where we show awesome pictures of mountain, like 
crazy engaged mountain, but uh, when it comes down to the story, no car was used. So that's the first uh, trying to create content and try to acclimate people to the fact that you can go to the mountain, you can spend some time there, but you don't need your car, your car to go there. Yeah. So that's the first side. Second side is we try to uh, bring in new technologies or innovations that would help people um, book their trip to the mountains without their car. Uh, so a shout out to people like uh, Tic Tac Trip right now, uh, where it's a website where you just put your um, origin address, you put the, your uh, destination, and it's going to calculate your, um, your route using train, buses, uh, taxis, maybe carpooling too, yeah. to the mountain station uh, without any car. So we try to put our athlete there so it, so it gets a bit of exposure. And the last part of it is to try and be political. And then again, the idea, uh, we are not trying to use our athletes. We offer them different occasions to raise their voice on different topics. Some of them don't want to talk about this particular regis uh, legislation. Some of them don't want to talk about this particular project. That's fine. Um, the idea is for us to offer them the means to talk about something that um, they deeply care about, yeah. the mountains, to talk about the impact on the mountains and to share with their community and ours the fact that uh, not everything is decided yet. And that if you're motivated enough to spend four hours climbing up a mountain, going to vote shouldn't be such a hard matter. Yeah. Uh, recycling shouldn't be such a hard matter too. And that you're not alone, pretty much. Like if you look around you, look for someone who's got a power sticker and you're gonna find you're gonna find a friend <laughs> pretty much who you can talk about uh, climate change, you can talk about adventure. And yet the idea is to just show that we are so passionate about what we do. We put ourselves in crazy situations, you know, like hanging from a cliff on, a, on a, like a, a hundred meter long uh, rope. That's something crazy. That's something humans are maybe not supposed to yeah. do. We still do it. So how come we can do those crazy stuff and we can't find motivation to... The easy things. Yeah, to do the easy things. The things and to do the thing that will help us do more oh. and more climbing, more and more skiing and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, the idea is to not blanket it on a happy go lucky <laughs> side of thing but say okay see how much passion you've got when it comes to sports and winter sports especially or mountain sports especially how can you try and convert that to um climate activism pretty much so i'm i'm just moved to the mountains i've only been, been in the mountains for five years that's my life now and i've that's the way i've become um and I've noticed the climate change, and it's how I've learnt about protect our winters. What can I do as just a, a young guy learning about the environment? What are the simple things that I can do to take action to protect my winters? Well, there's a lot of things. Um, first and foremost, I'm going to be really corporate here, but you can <laughs> become a member for, yeah. uh, for Protect Our Winters and help us found our campaigns. The idea uh, for us behind that is not that I want to take everyone's money. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you understand that we are not the richest people in the world, but saying like everyone has daily life um, and it's really, it's really hard sometimes to extract yourself from the daily struggles. And, but that's our job. We, we create the occasion for you to take just five minutes out of your daily life and go engage a politician, go engage a company and stuff like that. So that would be, that would be one of the first action. Now that it's taken out of the picture, um, there's so many things. And the, the idea for us is not to say that you can find all the answers at Protect Our Winters, but through Protect Our Winters, you can find different solutions. So maybe you're passionate about food. If you come to us, 
and look through our uh, our feed on social media at some point you're gonna find someone an, an organization that's gonna share it's gonna show you like recipes to do your own like energy bars to go into the mountain so that you don't have to buy them and you're gonna find interviews of world champion uh, athletes like Liv Sanso who's gonna tell you that she's been a vegan and vegetarian for the past I don't know many years yeah. and she was a world climbing champion without eating and any meat. one of the biggest environmental challenges yeah. is, is uh, vegan is, is eating too much meat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, then we we're gonna share partnership with you with, uh, for example, uh, uh, um, an application called Everride, which is the vintage for uh, mountain equipment. So you want new mountain equipment? Cool. Uh, maybe someone has the the object and the item that you want, but doesn't want to use it. Just go for it and maybe exchange it. Um, we're gonna share with you like occasions and other organizations that do uh, awesome work uh, for uh, your mobility. Like I said, Tic Tac Trip or yeah. other people. We're gonna share the work of our friends from Mountain Riders, for example, who every summer, every year, they organize like loads and loads of um, waste picking activities, like in the mountains and everything. Like they pick up like tons of waste every time. And we say, we just share the time that they open their their event to you. And we say, okay, go for it, yeah. go for there. Like my local, my local ski club at the end of the ski season, all the young kids get together and they clean the resort. Yeah. They clean the piss because everyone's dropping rubbish or dropping gloves and skis and yeah. they go and pick it up. At Cigarette the butts and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, maybe if you're a smoker, uh, touching the cigarette belt, you can just pack up a, a, a pocket uh, ashtray. Yeah. Pretty much that's quite easy. And our friends at Mountain Rise, the Riders do that. You got some, we're going to share occasions like with other friends called Mountain Wilderness, where those guys um, uh, take down like abandoned uh, mountain infrastructure. So ski lifts that have been abandoned, that you don't have any obligation from the government to take down, that you didn't use to have the obligation. Now it's uh, it's been uh, written in the law. And those guys go like, and girls, guys and girls go like 50 to 60 people and take it down and cut it down and then carry it. And then, so yeah, there's so many things you, 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 you can do. I think the, the first question to ask yourself is like, what do you like most in life? Um, in France, <laughs> food is a big part yeah. of it. So how can you go through food and try to have a better ethic, better ethics, better values and stuff like that? Maybe you're really into fashion. Um, and if you're really into fashion, maybe you don't want your taste in fashion to fuel the industry that exploits kids elsewhere around the world. So you say, okay, my passion is uh, fashion. How can I be a good person or how can I be a better person living my my passion without impacting other people and then you discover that there's vintage that there's garage sales and stuff like that so um, yeah I mean I, I, I don't know <laughs> I wouldn't I, w I wouldn't imagine telling you what to do with your life but I'd say look for what you love best be it food be it fashion be it sport being like maybe movies and stuff like that and there's always someone that has good advice for them and we are a good getaway for that because we are lucky to know really, really competent and uh, um, people full of talents. With that, all the organizations that I shared now and some of them are, if you like surfing, you can go to Surf Riders Foundation from Dufoulocon La Vague or the, the Water Family. Yeah. Like so many people. The idea is find what you like most, I think. Uh, if it's... Uh, drilling for oil <laughs> maybe find something else <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah f find the angle that would be the easiest for you pretty much and 
then like close like closely you're gonna find like okay if I did this for food maybe I can do it for fashion if I did this for fashion maybe I can do this for transport extra extra yeah I mean one of my passions is I'm a cyclist yeah. and I love riding my mountain bike but I've also seen um, some of your ambassadors use cycling and ski touring together and have some amazing adventures on their bikes yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, th that might be that might be one of the of the things you can do it's like if Right now, one of your favorite sports is cycling. Maybe you can ask yourself how this can become more than a sport and can become my mode of transportation every day. Um, you've got like many, many ideas that you can find yourself. And that goes back to what I said before, it's like creating content uh, and imagery that showcases that it's possible. Uh, it's, part, it's part of our job, I think. And, and when it comes to that, uh, we're from a winter sport and extreme sport background and Why do so many people do backflips now? Is because at some point someone showed them that you can do a backflip on skis yeah. or on snowboard. So um, why will many people use their bike instead of their car in the near future? Is because at some point some people showed them that you can perfectly go to the mountains if you do have some time uh, with your bike and your skis and go for an awesome adventure. I've, seen, I've got friends that take their e-bikes and yeah. they strap their skis on. It looks uh, awesome. And they, they go, they get higher, and then they go ski touring, and they come back down. They don't need, to, they don't need a car anymore. Yeah, no. Uh, of course, it, it works better for us um, people who live in the mountain, but I think it also comes down to um, trying to put in perspective the time that you have and what you want from this time. Like someone a few days ago told me, yeah, okay, it's cool, like your athletes and ambassadors and your movies, it showcases people going to the mountains with their bikes, but I don't have the time for that if I've got just one day in the weekend. And I think my answer was, um, again, humbly, I'm not here to tell anyone how they should lead their life, live their life, but it's like, if you tell me that you don't have the time to do that, it's maybe because you wanted to go too far. Maybe if you only got one day, maybe you should like shorten uh, your destination or yeah. maybe you should look closer to home because if it comes down to it, um, I'm pretty sure your values align with what we're saying. And instead of saying, okay, I can do like they do it because I've got one day, it's like maybe you shouldn't do it like they do. You should do it like you, you can do, do yeah. it. And from then you're going to be inspired to do more and you're going to be an inspiration to other people too. Yeah. I've been living here in France for five years now, and I live in the Haute-Maurienne, and I'm seeing glaciers change, and all my friends say, yeah, this glacier here used to be so much bigger. Um, what are some of the impacts that you've seen and your research is showing you that's impacting France and the, and the Alps and the Pyrenees? What are you seeing here that's you know it's changing here yeah the, the, i mean the 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 most obvious change is the melting of glaciers uh, you talk about the pyrenees uh, the pyrenees like they used to have huge glaciers not too long ago now they are really struggling right now actually you can find one blog post on our website where some of our, of our volunteers uh, went to help uh, another association called moraine try to do some measurements on the on the glacier One of our episodes of our web series called Climate Lines that you can find on YouTube shows that too. Two of our uh, athletes, Chloe and Colin, going with two scientists uh, trying to do some uh, glacier measurements and try to see how much it changes. And they show you the perspectives of it and projections. And it shows you that past 2050, we don't really know if it's going to be there anymore, depending on the trajectory we choose with our carbon emissions. Um, but yeah, the, the most striking example would be the glaciers because you still see the scars yeah. on the on the mountains. Um, people that are maybe between 
20, 30 to 60 years old can tell you like, I used to ski here, I used to climb here, I used to do some um, ice climbing over there and now it's gone. So that's the most uh, striking example. But what's more more impactful is what, what comes after that. Like as soon as the glacier, glacier melts, that means less fresh water for us, that means less water for our hydroelectricity, that means less water for our agriculture. And it all trickles down to at some point, if we don't have snow and ice in the mountains anymore, we don't not gonna have enough water down in the plains anymore, yeah. and that's when it's gonna get real tricky, real fast. Because try and live without water for a few yeah, days. Yeah, we have shorter winters. We're gonna have longer summers. Yeah, and you know the water from the mountains flows all the way down to the seas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's also a, a regulator. Too. So I'm not the, the 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 best scientist out there to talk to you about that. Um, I'm sure you can find other people, and I'm sure you will. But uh, uh, the idea too is that. Um, now it's being more concentrated when it uh, comes down to uh, rainfall. I'm sure you've seen that uh, this summer. We've had crazy rain yeah. coming in the in the summer. We've had crazy rain coming in the in the in the spring too. And instead of coming down like little by little by the snowmelt and everything, it just like rushes down and takes everything with it. Um, I don't know if you saw the the picture of the Valley de la Vesubie. Uh, like a few months ago, where like roads were taken off, like the train tracks were taken off because like too much water at one point where this should have been trickling down like little by little. And of course, you do have environmental catastrophe out of the climate change topic. Yeah, that's part of the that's part of the game, pretty much of the of the weather game. Um, still, um, as as long as you do have those glaciers, they can regulate the the weather, they can regulate the temperature, they can regulate the the flow of rivers, and that's how we've learned to live pretty much as humans in the Alps. And now that it's going to be changing, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, like hopefully it's not going to be that terrible. Hopefully we're going to get on track. We're going to wake everyone yeah. up and go for it. Still, till 2050, I'm, the game is set. It's past uh, 2050 that we can change stuff. Um, um, yeah, for now, I, I don't think I want to imagine this world, or at least our world, our alpine world, without the water, because it's going to be like, terrible. Yeah, I mean, terrible. living in a mountain community now, I, I can see the impact that a bad winter has on my local community in terms of jobs, the economy, even the farmers, because they are pumping more water and directing more water for their lands and their hay. So I'm more conscious of it now than I've ever been before. Yeah. Actually, back in the U.S., uh, they did a study a few years ago. Protector Winters U.S. did a study a few years ago um, on the economical side of things. Just uh, the difference between a good winter year and a bad winter year and advocating that the fact that with climate change, you're going to have more bad winter yeah, years. It's going to be more common. Will. And just... And that's really that's really North American, maybe to say to to see it like this. But just on the economical side, a, a bad winter means one billion dollars less in the entire American economy. Yeah. So that's one bad year out of every ten years, and then it's going to become more frequent. So two, three, four, and sometimes uh, maybe at some point it's going to be nine years out of ten. It's going to be a bad year, meaning you got like less money as taxes, just like that, to pay for schools, to pay for roads, to pay for the transition that we need, yeah. to pay for energy work and stuff like that. 
Um, so yeah, unfortunately, we thought that people and politicians would listen to the <laughs> to the economical side of things because you know money talks. Um, but still, it's still not enough to get them to act fast enough. So yeah, yeah. let's hope they uh, they act faster. So if people want to um, get involved and turn their passion into into the into protecting the winters, how can they follow you? Like where? Where can they see you? Because you're on the, the social media, you're on your Facebooks and Instagrams. Yeah, that's part of the contradiction. You know, yeah. we're trying to be to be mindful of the environment, but most of our work is done through social media. So you know, that's that's contradiction of the world. But we're trying to to change that. Um, they can find us on Instagram, Protect yeah. Our Winter's Friends. They can find us on uh, Facebook, Protect Our Winter's Friends too. They can find us on Twitter because we're yeah. getting more and more active on Twitter to um, to talk directly to politicians and, uh, and people like that. Uh, this time it's Poe Friends, not Our Protect Friends. Our Winter's. Yeah. Uh, they can find us on LinkedIn too yeah. uh, if they want to talk to um, on, more on the professional side yeah, of things. Get, get your professional... Um, yeah point of view across yeah 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 so uh, protect our winters friends too and you're on youtube uh you have good youtube yeah, channels we do have a youtube channels protect our winters friends again uh you can find some movies over there and uh, and then we gonna we have a few live events we do have a newsletter that you can register to so we send you like news and events uh sometimes but yeah the best place would be yeah either facebook twitter or instagram so that you you're being uh, kept uh, up to date with what we do, you're being uh, offered our blog posts and videos and articles and yeah. call to actions too. Okay. I think that's a nice way to, to wrap it up. Before we do, um, I just want to say that hopefully some of our listeners will uh, follow you on Instagram yeah. and, and Facebook and get involved and, and turn their passion for their, their sports and, and turn that passion into uh, some environmental challenges and get, in, and get involved. But there's three questions I'd like to ask all my guests. And one is uh, the first one being, how do the mountains make you feel? Good. Yeah. <laughs> just good. Yeah, just good. Um, it took me quite some time with the travel and, uh, and uh, the stories we shared uh, to realize that um, my place, whatever that means, uh, as a human being, was close to the mountains. Um, it took a depression <laughs> to, to understand that. Um, so it makes me feel good. And it also makes me feel small, which is a good thing. To me, um, I'm not belittled, but small. I don't yeah. know, like the, yeah, no, uh, small, yeah, yeah, I, I completely understand. Okay. Yeah. And and I think um, it makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger, greater, and more important than just me. And I think that's something that we need to advocate more. You know, like, uh, and it's easy for me to say because I I've got quite an easy life. Uh, I've got food in my fridge. I've got a, a, a shelter uh, above my head. So it's easy to say, but um, yeah, I think um, good and small. Yeah, yeah. let's it's, say good it, and small. I, I I do feel small. I still look at the window and look at the mountains. And go, wow, I can't believe I'm I'm living here. Yeah. and it's uh, it does make me feel small. What do the mountains teach you about life? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, that friends are important. Um, that um, being alone is fine too because when you're in the mountain even if you're just the only human you're not the only person let's say or the only living uh, living being over there um, that you should push yourself um, to do whatever you aspire to 
but uh, sometimes the signs are there that you should turn back. I think that's one of the main thing thing I've learned. Uh, actually, paragliding. Uh, some my, my instructor told me um, it's better to regret not to fly than to regret being in the sky. Yeah. And uh, this is something I think is really important too. Uh, turning back is something that we don't showcase um, often enough. I think in the mountains, like. One in every two outing, I think you just turn back because the weather is yeah. bad. And uh, yeah, I mean, you you gotta be you gotta be able to turn back to come back, pretty much. Yeah, the mountains always win. Yeah, and they they always be there. Yeah, exactly. Um, not in the same shape, yeah. shape and form that we know with what we talked about, but mostly they always be there, and you always have to come time to come back if you dare turn back. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah. And my last question is, uh, is to sh- hopefully you can share a story of being in the mountains with us. Yeah. Um, which one? <laughs> which one? Um, um, okay, I, 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 I'll try and wrap it up with the, everything we've talked about. Um, um, I came back to France for as a surprise for my friend's 30th birthday. Uh, my friend Vincent, shout out to him yeah. uh, for his 30th birthday, like four to five years, uh, five to six years ago. And, um, and that's when I realized that whatever I was chasing overseas, um, was just right there under my nose in France, just by looking at the scenery of us walking up under the rain, <laughs> uh, on the mountain that none of us really knew and uh, at some point we just looked at each other and it's like okay what do we do it's like do we should we push up like keep in there keep going in the rain keep going in the rain and just like just a few looks it's like okay, okay we do realize that we do have like different lives at the same time I used to live overseas overseas but this particular mountain this particular moment was able to bring us back together after like almost 10 years for myself yeah. and yeah so that was that was like a short version of it but the story was um for me like realizing that when i've got my friends when i've got my well they're my family too um and that i can take them and spend some time on the mountain no matter what the mountain no matter what the weather i mean with those guys i take my bike and go like under the rain and stuff like that with the skin on it like it's it doesn't matter like um whatever story that you live in the mountain whatever um the, the the aim was as long as you're with friends and as long as you live what's under your nose right now it's always going to be a nice story it's a great story cool yeah thank you for coming on the show thank thanks you. for wrapping thank up thank you for having me. me thank you all right so that's it for this episode i hope you enjoyed it if you want to hear more stories from beyond the mountains please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts you can find me on apple itunes spotify and google podcasts Please leave a comment and review. It helps with people to find the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond the Mountains Podcast. So please like and follow the show. And remember, the mountains are more than just rock and ice, but the mountains are made up of the people who live, work, and play in them. <laughs>